podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 244, Two Passions, Flying in Formation, Aviation and Writing, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks, welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Joining us today is someone who has realized his two passions of aviation and writing, and that's Nathan Van Koops. He's an accomplished pilot and author. Today, we discuss his journey towards accomplishing the goal of aviator and author. Let's do the pre-flight. Before we begin, though, we have a few announcements. First of all, our sponsor is AviationCareersPodcast.com. We have the uh, scholarships guide there, and if you use the coupon code PAYITFORWARD, you could get a free scholarships guide. We're up to 57 uh, counted scholarships right now, over 200 there. We have 1,000 pages in the guide. We're officially recounting them. We're probably going way over $200 million, uh, once we finish that uh, count. So if you're looking to get a rating, you want to become a flight instructor, you want to become a seaplane pilot, out, that's the place to go. We have 32 new scholarships this month with 18 updates and a new category for scholarships for adults. So go check that out at aviationcruisepodcast.com and use the coupon code PAYITFORWARD. Now entering cruise flight. No news and announcements today, and uh, but I have joining us today for this uh, very special interview with our guest is Russ Rosleski. Hey, Russ. How you doing, man? Carl, it's great to be on the podcast. It seems like we just met, well, because we did a few days ago, but <laughs> that's how these things go, right? Yeah, that's for sure. And and Russ, I tell you, uh, this was wonderful you thinking up this idea because uh, the person that we're about to talk to is uh, quite creative and also is a very passionate aviator. So Russ, why don't you introduce our guest today? Okay, sure, Carl. Well, Anybody who's listened to the Stuck Mike Avcast for more than about two episodes knows that I read a lot, right? I mean, my pick of the yeah. week is always a book. There's no question about that. Um, so, and mostly I talk about aviation books that I've read on the podcast, but I do actually read more than that. Uh, one of my favorite uh, other kind of subject matters is time travel stories. I like to kind of see how each author presents the paradoxes, you know, the back to the future type things and and whatever, how they set up the rules of time travel and that kind of thing. So, uh, anyway, so I came across this series of books about time travel called In Times Like These, which is also the name of the first book in the series. In the second book, which is called The Chronothon, there was a scene where the main character has to get up high in the air for some you know, various plot-related reasons. Uh, he has to get up high in the air. So he realizes that at the local flight school, they do demo flights, which most of us on Listen's podcast know about. And so he just signs up for one and then they go up on demo flight. But throughout the flight, I, I really kind of started to get a little bit suspicious of the author's aviation background. There were just way too many accurate references to specific aircraft equipment, you know, like magnetos and such, and the aircraft performance, you know, it wasn't doing things it couldn't really do. 
you know, other things that authors just totally get wrong usually. Um, and the aviation terms were all used correctly, and the plane wasn't some ridiculous Cessna, you know, turbo jet prop V-tail helicopter or something like that. So now I'm pretty good on Google. Okay. And the author has a reasonably uncommon name as far as I knew. So I just kind of went to the FAA's Airman Registry and typed it in. And sure enough, the author's a commercial rated pilot, a CFI, and an ANP and IA. So he's got like all the whole gamut of, of aviation ratings here. Uh, we sent a few emails back and forth. And I think he has a real interesting aviation story and obviously a passion for both aviation and writing. Although his writing is not just about aviation, which is what I thought was really interesting. So, so there's a really long intro, Carl. Uh, get that out of the way and welcome Nathan Van Koops to the podcast. Hey, Nathan, guys. how are you? I'm excited to be here. I, I really appreciate you you hunting me down and, and, and getting me on the show. Well, it wasn't hard <laughs> <You know? laughs> anymore. You know, it's 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 amazing how we can communicate with authors and stuff. You know, now that we really never could do in the past. It was just this you know, nameless, faceless, well, I guess not nameless, but this faceless, you know, person who wrote these books, you know, but, but it's cool how we can communicate now. But uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting to find out about your background and kind of like to go through some of that. Um, so you've got all these ratings, commercial, CFI, A&P, IA. So you obviously got quite an aviation background. Can you kind of walk us through kind of your history growing up or however it started? Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's It's been a fun ride. Uh, in aviation. I started out when I was a kid, my grandfather was um, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. He, he, uh, his name's Morgan Matthews, and he was, um, he served in World War II. He, he flew P-38s and in Italy, which was a pretty cool gig, loved the airplane, always told stories about the plane. And he had a pretty decorated career in Italy, which I didn't find out about until after he had passed away. Because, you know, a lot of these World War II guys, you know, they don't, talk about themselves like heroes they you know they don't tell you much about what they've done um right. and that was at least that was the case with him and it was only after he had passed away we kind of found a lot of the medals and the news articles and things um but he had had the pretty storied career and then you know, he went on to um fly chinooks and all kinds of things he, he was in, through korea vietnam he was still active in the military for you know over 20 years so i had this great career but which he didn't mostly talk about except for the airplanes he loved talking about airplanes and he would take us to air shows when we were kids and went and saw the thunderbirds when this was out in southern california when they still had uh, shuttle launches out there too um or they had we went and saw a space shuttle at vandenberg air force base when i was a kid and one of the things he um he would always say to me whenever we were on the phone was he knew my two interests at the time were baseball and flying and he said he would always say to me you know if you want to be a pilot you can be a pilot. You want to be a baseball player? You can be a baseball player. And um, he said, you can do anything you set your mind to. And that just stuck in me uh, throughout my my life. And uh, I was not that great at baseball. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that wasn't the, the career path for me, it turned out. So, uh, but I, when I was in high school, I, we had, my family had moved us to, to Pennsylvania, Hanover, Pennsylvania, where all the uh, oats potato chips come from. And the Snyder's pretzels, those of you who are from the Northeast know the, the snack food capital that Hanover, Pennsylvania is. And uh, it happened to be there was this little grass field down the street from where we lived in this little town called McSherrystown, which is right adjacent to Hanover. And uh, the only airport there is this little two-strip, uh, I, think, I think one of the, air, the 
the strips was uh, 1,500 feet or something like that. It's very small, corn on all sides. Uh, and they had a big barn uh, and a little hangar and a couple little airplanes sitting in there at 152. And I think a couple other ones scattered around the field. And one day my parents were like, hey, you want to learn, take some flying lessons? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and this was, um, I was 14, 15 at the time, just started uh, taking some lessons. And then um, I sold it on my 16th birthday. And, uh, you know, it just had a blast. And in, in hindsight, I think it was really smart for my parents to do that when I was a teenager because I had this cool thing to keep me out of trouble. You know, when, you know, other kids were getting in trouble, I was off taking flying lessons and learning to be a pilot. And it was, it was fantastic. So, um, it was, so it was a passion from an early age and I, it took me a little while. I, I went to, uh, college right after high school, just briefly and realized that it wasn't for me. I was an art major at the time. My other love in high school was art. Uh, I was, uh, that was my creative outlet at the time, drawing and fine arts. But I realized it's a whole lot easier to be in aviation for a career and do art on the side than try to do art as a career and do aviation on, on the side. Aviation is not the cheapest hobby, uh, as many of us know, when it comes to you know renting planes. And I realized it was much better to be involved in aviation as a career and then pursue my creative uh, side after that. So I uh, did go become a uh, commercial pilot. I went down to a school that's no longer around. Um, North American Institute of Aviation, which is down in uh, Conway, South Carolina, flew there, uh, got my commercial and instrument rating down there, came back up to Pennsylvania and got a, a, had a fun job flying uh, a guy named Detour Dave, who was doing morning and afternoon rush hour traffic. And that was my first commercial job, flew a bunch of uh, loops around the beltway at 1400 feet, you know, about five hours a day, five days a week. So it was um, not the most stimulating um, flying you can do necessarily, but it was a lot of, it was a good time builder for me. And I was learning a lot about, you know, of course, airspace. When you're in airspace five hours a day, five days a week, like you get really good at the radios, you get, um, you just get comfortable in the airplane. It was just a little Cessna 172. I was flying right seat because the uh, Detour Dave liked to fly in the pilot seat on the left. So it gave me a lot of good right seat time for later on when I wanted to become a flight instructor. So I was very comfortable with that. And it turns out that actually um, it was one of those times just sort of buzzing around Baltimore that actually triggered an idea that would later on become one of my stories. I, I was um, flying along and one day, this there was this balloon floating by. I know a lot of you that have flown, obviously, fly around. People, you know, that don't fly think that they let go of a balloon and it just keeps on going up forever, but um, it has to stop. I mean, obviously, depending on the, the the altitude and the humidity and everything else going on, or the temperature that day, it's going to change where that balloon's hanging out. And there happened to be one that I just kept passing it because I would be doing these loops around Baltimore and I kept seeing this balloon hanging out at you know, fourteen hundred feet. And uh, it kind of gave me the idea of like, well, oh, what if there was more things up here? What if there was other stuff in the, in the, in the sky to, to worry about besides airplanes? And that, that idea eventually turned into a story um, where there's things that live in the sky. You know, like, what if the sky was more like the ocean? And um, I later on, it was too big of a story for me to write, but later on it became a, series, a book I called Faster Than Falling. 
and it has a lot of aviation in it. It's, it's all about uh, life in the sky. But yeah, so some of those tours around Baltimore um, were good fodder for ideas for later. You had a lot of time to think maybe during, yeah. during all that flying. Right? Yeah, because um, I don't want to sell D- Detour Dave out too much, but he would nod off between uh, reports sometimes. <laughs> and it was just, it was warm. It was you know, six in the morning. It was winter time. It was cold. Um, and we had this weird intercom system where I could talk to ATC. He could talk on the radio, but we couldn't talk to each other. Somehow the intercom, so if we had to talk to each other, I had to like pull my my headset back and yell at him and he would have to yell at me. And sometimes I would be listening um, uh, on to the, to the radio. So you could pick up, you know, radio stations um, on your ADF. So I, was, we were put, I would tune that in sometimes and listen to, to him do announcements. And every once in a while I'd be listening to the radio, hearing them call for him. And I'd have to look over and, and Dave would be asleep next to me <laughs> have to nudge him real hard with my elbow and say hey dave and of course he'd been doing that, that for 12 years and he'd pop up and ramble off some some traffic report that was nowhere near to where we even were <laughs> but no one knew the difference you know and uh, he had a general idea of what the traffic would be like had we had we been over top of that particular spot and uh he he made it sound good um but yeah, it wasn't the most stimulating conversation that we had in the cockpit at the time. I guess not. So, so after the traffic reporting, what, what, where'd you go from there? So I did, did that for a little while. I said, built some time and I happened to, I decided to go become a flight instructor and I went out to uh Shebley aviation out in Bullhead city, Arizona for that. And did a couple week course there, did uh, my CFI and my double I. And um, that kind of got me, that was influential for me because I met a guy out there who was flying for a company called Mission Aviation Fellowship, who does bush flying. Uh, they do a lot of, um, they've got, I think, over 400 pilots, I want to say, at least they did at the time. And they fly Peace Corps volunteers, doctors, all kinds of folks. And he happened to be in Lesotho, which is like the small country that's inside South Africa. And um, he was, you know, flying medical missions and things like that for this uh, fundamental Christian I think it's, I guess they're non-denominational Christian organization. And I thought, wow, that's exactly the kind of thing I would be getting into. Cause I've been reading a lot of, um, you know, Jimmy Buffett books, like meet Joe merchant, things like that where like these cool stories where pilots are flying in the Caribbean or I just, I didn't know where I was going to end up at the time. I was 19, I think 20 at that point. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a Bush pilot. And I thought that would be a great gig. So I went and got my CFI and was building a little bit of time doing that too. But then I was, I had my eye on this bush flying gig and turns out though, all these bush flying jobs, if you want a good job, um, you need to be an AMP because you're out in the boonies. You got to be able to fix your own airplane. They don't have a lot of mechanics for you to, so the, uh, most of these bush flying jobs, they want you to have an AMP with it. So I said, all right, well maybe I'll, I'll get an AMP. So I was, I was looking around. And at that point, actually, I had gone to work for, um, I'd moved to Rhode Island briefly and gone to work for, for Continental Airlines, not as a, uh, a pilot, but as a ground crew. I just did, I was ticket agent for a while, throwing bags for a while, fueling trucks, doing all the ramp stuff um, for Continental, which was a great experience. And it was, interestingly enough, it was right during 9-11. I got hired on, our, my fifth week of training was in Newark at the time, and I was in the World Trade Center the night before 
the planes hit. Um, oddly enough, just that happened to be there. And then we were we were in the Newark Training Center on the other side of the river the next morning when the planes hit. And we all ran over to the window and said, oh, yeah, plane hit the, hit the towers. It ran, we all ran to the window. And I saw the second one go in with my own eyes out the window. And um, so, obviously, I mean, everyone remembers where they were that day. That was – and for me, it just – it was kind of shook me a little bit because I, you know, I had just been there the night before one of the girls in my class who was in my uh, ticket agent class had wanted to go to the, go shopping in the trade center. And we had gone, there was a mall there underneath. And um, I remember we had gotten a smoothie and we were walking outside, not wanting to look like tourists. And I remember like looking up at the towers and thinking, ah, I, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm going to pretend like the, I, I know my way around here. I'm going to pretend like I'm, you know, cool and I don't need to gawk at these things. But, you know, of course they were, they were down the next day. So, um, yeah, strange time to be in aviation, of course. You know, the airlines stopped flying for a few days. I had to rent a car and drive back to Rhode Island. But thankfully, Continental actually kept me on. They didn't lay anyone off, which was a credit to them as an airline uh, at the time. They did a really good job there. And then, um, but because I was on, I was working for an airline, I was able to get flights all over the place, you know, cheap for 10 bucks or something. I could hop on a plane. So I went to visit a couple aviation schools um, for mechanics. And that's what brought me down to Clearwater. I came down to visit National Aviation Academy, which is here in uh, in Pinellas County. And I got there. I didn't have a car, of course. So I'd flown down on the airline. So I um, was at a hotel or something nearby the school, went for a visit, went for an interview. And then I hopped in a cab and took a trip out to the beach because I wanted to see what the beach looked like. Got out to Clearwater Beach and said, yep, this is where I'm going to go to school. If I got to spend 14 months somewhere, Learn to be an A&P. It's going to be right here. So that was the beginning of my um, Florida. I'd only been to Florida one time before that. Actually, back in, in 2000, I had been down to uh, Jack Brown Seaplane Base to get my seaplane rating. Back then, it was, I mean, I think it was a two-day course, and I don't know what it cost now. I think it was 700 bucks back then. You can come and, you know, get a few, you know, five hours of flying around in a, in a, in a cub on floats. And, um, that was a blast. Probably the most fun I've ever had flying is uh, hopping around the lakes over there in Winter Haven. And that was just a, a good time. So, um, yeah, bounced around, did, did some of that. Like I said, went to A&P school, loved it. Um, didn't find it as – it was funny because, like, my, my parents had, had – you know, they knew I was pretty artistic and said, you know, I had done a lot of art classes. And I wasn't especially mechanical as a kid. And um, – I remember my, my dad saying, um, are you sure you want to go to A&P school? Like you're not very mechanical. You've never taken a single thing apart that ever went back together correctly. <laughs> and, um, but I went back to, you know, what my grandfather had always said. He's like, you put, you can do anything you put your mind to. And I believed it. So I said, sure. Yeah. I'm going to go down to be an A&P. And, um, turned out to be a great decision. Loved it. And then I did end up going to, I worked out in Venice for a little while. Uh, Florida Flight Training Center, and then um, that was a, a, a eye-opening experience because I had, I had come out of school. The guy who owned it was Dutch. He thought I was Dutch because my last name sounds Dutch. Uh, we were chatting before we started recording that uh, Van Koops sounds like a Dutch name. It's it's really um, my grandfather just sort of tacked it on. Van was his middle name, and he didn't want to be have the same name as his grand as his dad. So I'm fake Dutch, but I never told my boss that when he hired me. Um, Cause he had hired all these Dutch people and uh, he, I get down there and he's like, okay, well, you're going to work at this flight school. Here's six planes to take care of. I think it was a Seneca two and a, a 172 and four or five 152s. 
and a uh, archer. And it was like, here you go. Take care of all these planes. And I was fresh out of school, had changed, I think, one tire in school. And uh, it was this incredible sink or swim opportunity for me to all of a sudden be doing 100-hour inspections and doing all my AD research and parts ordering and everything. Um, so, But basically, I was running a small shop on my own with um, little, very minimal experience, but it was a very sink or swim thing. It was kind of a stressful year and a half, but uh, thankfully there was a really good A&P there at the shop who was doing the other maintenance for the other aircraft on the field. Um, and he was excellent, taught me everything I know basically, and uh, about how to deal with customers and things like that. And then uh, I didn't you know, I did a decent job. All the planes kept flying. I didn't get fired and I managed to learn a lot about how to be a mechanic in a year and a half and then uh, bounced back up to uh, uh, Maryland briefly where I'd learned to got my commercial, some of my commercial flying and where the Detour Dave job was up in Westminster, Maryland. That's where we flew out of for the Baltimore job. Did a little bit of uh, mechanic work up there. Did some traveling, um, bounced around Mexico a little bit, drove around the country in my VW Beetle and uh, had some adventures and then eventually wound my way back to St. Pete and got a job at Albert Wooded Airport, which um, if you guys have ever been there, it's a gem of an airport. It's right on the water, right downtown. Uh, we've got two runways. We've got a, a 1836, which is our short runway, and then a, a, a 725, which is you know our long runway, but they're, they're not especially long. So it's just general aviation, basically. We get, I think the biggest thing we can get out of there is maybe a lightly loaded citation, maybe something something coming in light, uh, or at least going out light. Um, so yeah, it's a great place to learn to fly. The control tower's really relaxed. The guys are nice. And then uh, I said, yeah, I want to work here. So I, I walked in one day to the flight school, met the owner and said, hey, I'm, hi, I'm Nathan. I'm an a and I'd like to work here. And he said, why don't you start Monday? And then uh, I flight instructed on the side evenings and weekends, you know, cause I was still doing that. So, um, and then a couple of years later, they made me director of maintenance. Uh, the guy that was director of maintenance left. So they, they said, all right, why don't you run the show for a while? So I did that, ran the maintenance shop for about five years. And then um, during that time, I actually became a DME, uh, designated mechanic examiner. And then when the, uh, the ownership of the, the flight school changed hands, I actually went off on my own. And uh, now I'm doing full-time kind of DME work. Got a little hangar, take care of a couple airplanes. Um, and then I also now write. So I'm my own boss, which is nice. I ended up becoming self-employed, which is fantastic. So I'll work, do exams for AMP mechanics a few days a week, take care of a couple planes a couple days a week. And then I got a couple days a week where I'm just writing. And uh, it's worked out to be a really good lifestyle. I go to work with my dog now. I wear flip-flops <laughs> and uh, it's kind of, I'm kind of living the dream. Isn't that interesting how life works out? I mean, here you, you, you went to become an A&P so that you could do, you know, bush flying and yeah. fly in South Africa or whatever. And, yeah. and it didn't quite go that way, but it went right. a, a totally different way. And, and, and here you are now, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you said you start, you got some ideas, for, you know, for your books from, from the flying you had been doing and, and when did you really start, um, you know, putting pen to paper as it was, you know, starting yeah. writing your books and getting those thoughts together. It was interesting. It was probably around 2008, 2009. I was, yeah. um, it was prior to running the shop. I was actually just an AMP at the time. And 
I would get every day on my, my 15 minute breaks and my, or my hour long lunch break, I would get out my laptop and just start pecking away. And my word document about this idea I had for a time travel story. And because I had originally that, that balloon idea, it was too big for me. It was this whole fantasy world I wanted to create. And I wasn't good enough yet. I wasn't a good enough writer to make that happen. I had to start with something closer to home. So I went with this um, sort of back to the future-esque kind of story of, okay, what if this group of friends goes back to the 1980s and it's here in St. Pete and um, they get stuck there and now they have to figure out how to get back. And it was relatively simple, but it, it obviously with anything with time travel gets complicated. So <laughs> I had to sit there and noodle it around for quite a few years coming up with a system of time travel and um, I think partly being a pilot, being a mechanic, you're a little bit more spatial, a little bit more um, technical. So, and I was irritated at all the other time travel movies and books that had gotten it wrong, in my opinion, where it's like, <laughs> well, if you just jump from right here, right now to three days from now, the earth will have moved and you'll be in outer space. So like, how do you expect to get anywhere? You'll, you're just going to die in space. So I had to come up with a system for them to be able to travel around that would account for the fact that the earth was moving and... The anchors, um, yes. Yeah, this anchor base. I came up with this yes. anchor based time travel system uh, where you have to basically jump in conjunction with something that's not uh, time traveling. And then you just show up where that thing is. So, but it's been a lot of fun because, you know, whether it's a car or I think that airport scene that you read, he got there by touching a car that was driving there. I think he paid a cabbie to drive to the airport, something like that, and then just showed up because the cab was already there. So he was able to just like touch the cab jump through time and then show up at the airport because the cab was sitting there um, and skip the whole having to get in the cab and drive there part, which yeah, was like, you really got to read the books to understand what he's <laughs> talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, like I said, you, you, it's interesting seeing how each, each author deals with time travel and the rules and such. And you yeah. have very, had a very creative solution there. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's, it's fun. I think partly too, is that, you know, when you're in a technical job like flying or maintenance, um, it's great for hands-on, but it's not necessarily creative. It's not where you don't necessarily want to get creative when you're in, in charge of other people's lives. And um, it's not the time to really get fancy. You, you would kind of want to play it by the book usually. But um, aviation gave me, or I'm sorry, writing gave me this outlet for the creative side of me. And um, it was great to be able to work those kind of scenes in, uh, which was just makes it more authentic, I think. So you, you kind of said that you, you know, your primary job is is aviation, the A&P, the DME type stuff, mm -hmm. but then you work in your um, you know, writing. Is that all kind of in your spare time? Do you ever have to like, oh, I need to take a day off work? Or I know you're self-employed, but I yeah. can't work today. I got a big idea. I got to balance my time here. That's I think that's the, the best part about being self-employed because right now, like usually I do three days at the airport, two days writing, but then um, like I'll do, it's flexible. So, and also like I give myself like a three hour lunch break so I can go and sit somewhere, eat some tacos and then just, you know, spend a couple of hours writing before I have to go back to work. I um, talk to my boss about these three. hour <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I was, I was getting that. Uh, I remember when I became the director of maintenance, um, I had already started writing a little bit on the side. And, and I remember when they offered me the position, they're like, well, do you want to be salaried or do you want to be hourly? And I remember specifically saying, don't make me salary. I want to still be hourly. I want to still punch the clock because I want to, I don't want anyone to resent the fact that I'm not there because I'm going to take long lunches. 
And because, um, you know, when you work in the clock, if you're if you're the mechanic punching the clock and your boss is out golfing, but they're still getting paid like they're there, you kind of resent them a little bit. You're like, you know, that's not good leadership. So I wanted the, my team that I worked with to know that if I wasn't there, I wasn't getting paid. So, you know, they I think they respected that you know, in terms of leadership and saying, look, you know, I respect the time you're here. You're getting paid for. I'm only going to get paid for the time I'm there. And I knew that those hour lunch breaks were sometimes going to be an hour and a half or whatever, even when I was managing the shop. So, but the boss was great. And the manager or the owner of the, the flight school didn't care as long as the work got done, the work got done. And he was a little bit forward thinking that way. Um, it wasn't a strict eight to five. Um, and it was, it was a good, you have to find the right people to work with, obviously. And I think that this was before people were really trying to concentrate on the work-life balance as like a, a term. I think it wasn't quite as common back then. Of course, now with everyone working from home, it's such a more common thing where people are realizing, yeah, we can, we can manage our time a little bit better. We can be our own bosses and actually get the job done. Uh, but that was something I learned then. Oh, it really sounds like you've got, you know, kind of your perfect little situation here that, yeah. you know, that all of us want to work in our own little, little perfect setup. And you've really yeah. got that nailed. It sounds like, yeah. Also uh, in paradise too. I mean, it, it well, just, yeah. where, <laughs> it's just a wonderful place there on the water. Plus it you is. get to fly and you get to write and you get to fixed airplanes. So yeah, uh, and, and it's a beautiful airport. I used to keep a 182 there, but, uh, but anyway, I'm sorry. It was it was one of one of those things that uh, you just kind of struck me was that work life balance, and it it just seems like your whole life revolves around the two big passions that you have, and mm-hmm. education and and writing. I think we all try to kind of we aspire to do do just that, uh, which is yeah. incredible. And I have to explain that sometimes to my writer friends because my writer friends a lot of times they're chasing the dream. A lot of them are trying to you know escape a, a nine to five that they hate, some sort of grind. And they're trying to go become full-time writers and like full-time writing is this lofty goal that they want to do. And they think, Oh, I'm not a real writer unless I'm a full-time writer. And whereas they come talk to me and I'm like, no, I'm never going to be a a full-time writer. I don't want to be because I love my other job. Like I'm not like my aviation job is not a grind. I I love what I do. And there's times when I want to take a break from writing altogether and be like, Hey, I need to go, you know, get back in the air, go work on some planes, go just go mingle around with the other guys hanging out in the hangars. Um, just because it is such a good lifestyle, like being around an airport. I, I try to explain it to people sometimes that people don't come to an airport to have a bad time. You know, like usually, especially in a general aviation airport, the guys that are hanging around there are there because they want to be there. Um, not because they're, you know, they have to, it's, it's because it's a passion. You got into it because you love it. And the guys that own airplanes down there, um, and gals, there's, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, like you, you get into it because you're passionate, like you said, and it's fun. It's just, you know, people like flying. It's just a cool gig. So the idea of, you know, not doing it anymore would really bother me. I can definitely see why. Go, go ahead, Carl. One thing I was going to ask you is as far as being in St. Pete and at the airport, have you been able to uh, actually meld some of the characters that are there, like uh, Tiki Tom or Pineapple Paul or any of the folks (laughs) there into some of your books? Yeah, Yeah, that's actually funny. Tiki's a reader, too. He likes my stuff. Um, I work with with Tom. I actually work on his planes that he flies, a couple of them. But um, I have, actually. It's it's funny because some of the characters are only – loosely you know they're, they're loosely based on real people if you go back and read that scene that's in the chronothon uh the people working the desk um 
the people that that own the flight school, they were real characters. I just changed the names around a little bit. Um, and I've actually got an idea for another series that I would like to write. I have several ideas always kind of in the hopper at any given time. I want to write a um, sort of like a men's adventure fiction series that I was going to call um, like the Hangar 5 series that one of my uh, former coworkers works down there and has, has a shop there that uh, he's also a reader. He reads a lot of my books and loves them. So like I've kind of built that relationship with him and I've kind of got the idea of using his hangar as a location for a fictional character uh, who has adventures and is a pilot. And I think my next uh, time travel book, I may actually have the main character be a pilot as well, just to find a way to, to work in a few more scenes where he can, you know, get him in airplanes. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you about next was just how you, how often you, you really work aviation into these books. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I found a couple examples, but is it like you're really, I want to get aviation into this book or is it just, you just kind of let it happen as it happens or, or how does that work? So far, I just sort of let it happen as, as it, um, occurred naturally. Although in the chronothon, it was, I did kind of have the idea of like, I, this would be a great place to have a scene. I knew it so well. A lot of times you write what you know, and you want to write from a place of authenticity. And if you have a given strength, if you have something like, you know, if, if you're a police officer, you're probably going to write really good scenes that involve investigations and in police, and you're going to do it right. And people are going to be able to read that, know that you know what you're talking about, and then feel that much more immersed in the world than the fiction. It's not going to seem like fiction It's going to seem real. So as an author, you have to tap into those strengths. And it just happens to be that one of my strengths is aviation and, and mechanics and stuff to some degree. Um, I have another series right now that I'm working on called the Kingdom of Engines series, which is actually based on, it's like uh, a modern medieval story. So it's muscle cars meets sword fights. It's, a, it's like, what if, what if knights drove cars instead of rode horses? That's kind of the concept. And um, I've created this world where this is possible, but a lot of the engine terminology, I can you know throw terms around about turbochargers and wastegates and things like that because I've had a career in aviation working on aircraft. Um, and I base it around like a 70s model era car because that's how far aviation has come in terms of <laughs> GA. Uh, it's about as far as our technology has gotten. So if you ask me about modern day uh, cars, I'm lost. Uh, but I've got a, a 1972 Beetle in the garage. I can tell you all about that because it matches up with, this, with the 66, you know, Continental in my 172 at, at the airport. So, uh, Do you ever find yourself... You, you know, hey, wait a minute. I need to back off. I'm providing a little too much <laughs> detail here. Nobody's yeah. going to read this. I, I need to tone it down a little bit. Yeah, I think that's part of the editing phase is go back through and say, have I lost anyone with, you know, have I used acronyms that people wouldn't know? Sure. Um, and of course, you learn that as a flight instructor too. When you're when you're teaching, especially someone who's brand new, you don't want to throw a bunch of jargon at them. And you realize very quickly when their eyes glaze over uh, in the seat next to you that they don't get what you're saying. Use, use some sort of term that they don't get. And um, you have to kind of take it back to their level. So it's a skill I've, I've acquired over the years as a flight instructor. So it comes in handy as a writer. I think one of the things that amazes me, and uh, 
anybody who knows me, you know, I am not a very creative person. It's just not in me. I, I know probably Nathan, you'll say everybody has a little bit of creativity in them, but you know, I, I've tried over the years and it's just not there. <laughs> but one of the things that really amazes me is just the type of ideas that you, and of course, other authors come up with. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, your upcoming series here, you know, who, who comes up with this stuff? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I love the, in times like these series, uh, I mean, you know, it's like, did you just want to write every possible type of time travel story in the same series? Because they go everywhere, especially in the chronothon. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like ancient history. There's, I think, Wild West. Uh, there's, you know, stuff in space. You yeah. know, it's like, I couldn't make up my mind what type of book to write. So I'm just going to write yeah. them all in one. One of my uh, my reviewers called it the sampler of time travel. Yes, because, that's like, perfect. It's you, know, you get a little bit of everything, and don't don't choose just just do a little bit of everything. And yeah, the premise of the of the book is it's a time travel adventure race where the characters have to compete in this sort of amazing race type competition all through time, and each level of the race is a different time period. So they get to um, that was fun. They get one 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 scene they get to be on the Hindenburg, which was a, a really fun right, kind of right. aviation thing to research. I got so lost in, in the down that rabbit hole of researching that. Hindenburg disaster and um, people who know the disaster will go and like I, all the names I used, all the people I used in the, in the scene were actually really there. They really were serving sandwiches at the time it happened. You know, the way that the characters escape out through the bottom of the Hindenburg is actually the way that this kid um, named Warner actually did escape. And he ran out of there without a mark on him because of the fact that the, the front of the ship bounced on its only wheel. And then he was able to run out from underneath it. And the reason why he wasn't burned is because he was soaking wet because one of the ballast tanks let go and drenched him. So I took all of that real history and then just added my characters in. And, you know, my main character gets drenched with the ballast tank and goes out the door with Warner and like ends up running through history basically. But it's, it's fun when you can go and research those things and then just sort of play around. And I, and I apologize if you're here whining, my dog is just outside the door and he's just really unhappy that I'm <laughs> in here. And he's not. We're, we're used to that with turbo you know, he, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 with Victoria's dog. But hey, you know, one thing that I, when you started talking about this in the history there, it's, it's almost as if you're becoming a James Michener of the time travel genre. I, I don't know if being in, in Pennsylvania has, has any influence over that, but uh, it's really cool. I love it when when folks do that. Not you know the technical side in aviation, but off the the historic side. Uh, yeah. Is that something that influences you? Some of those other authors that you read, if maybe Michener is one of them. I'm not sure. Not some, probably not so much Michener. I've read. Um, it is very important to read in your genre though, and to read in the style that you're trying to write. So for me, it might be if I'm reading writing time travel, I might read Heinlein. I might read. Um, or even just other big works in, in the genre. So, of course, you know, we grew up reading Time Machine and by H.G. Wells, or you might read Lightning by Dean Koontz, or um, some of these other, like Heinlein is a, is a big one. He's done quite a few time travel stories. Um, or, you know, Replay by Ken Grimwood, things like that that are, that are kind of classics. You want to read all these so that you absorb them and you understand the genre and what you're doing, and then you can also understand what you're doing differently and why. Because um, I think the most important thing about being a writer, and a lot of people don't realize this out of the gate, is reader expectations. Do you deliver on the promise that you're making with the cover, with the title, with the genre you're writing in? Because people write, you know, read detective novels, they expect a certain thing. They expect a certain type of detective. They 
um, want the case solved with clues that are readily available. They don't want you to cheat and say, okay, yeah, you just came up with the solution at the end, but you never presented the reader with any of these clues. That's cheating. Same thing with time travel. You have to come up with your rules. You can't break them. Um, and when it comes to the level of detail you add, things like that, obviously you want it to make sense. And one of the things I think that's the trick to writing a good story when it comes to research is putting in details that's accurate, not drowning the reader with it. But for those who are curious, if they go searching, they'll be satisfied. Because most people will read the chronothon, they'll read through the whole Hindenburg scene, just move on with the story. It's not relevant to them. You know, I mean, it's not relevant to the action. They'll just enjoy a good story. If they wanted to go back and read about the Hindenburg, they would also discover that a lot of those things in the scene are accurate. Um, but they don't have to. You don't make them know all those things in order to enjoy the book. And I think that's kind of the balance you have to find as a writer. Don't burden your reader with information. <laughs> just give them what they need. Mm -hmm. And then if they want more, then great. You know, I... I, I I do want more, and, and and it was oh, I'm so happy, I'm so excited because uh, in my prep for this interview, I realized you just released another book in the in times like these series called Agent of Time, came out a couple months ago, I guess that I didn't realize. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got I got to <laughs> add something to my list. Now that that's a shorter one, it looks like it's it is uh, it's like a novella, novella or something. Yeah, okay, but but I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, yeah I and you know, it, it's so interesting how, how you've combined this. Uh, this you know aviation and and writing background and your passions for both and you know I'm sure that we have listeners that that are listening to this thing you know I, I've I've got some ideas for for a book mm -hmm. maybe based maybe based on my aviation background or, yeah. or maybe something else like like yours you know they're not yeah. they're not aviation books particularly they might have scenes right. in it but it's not you're not writing you know Fate as the Hunter or something like that right mm -hmm. so. Uh, do you have any advice for for some of our listeners who might have some of these ideas and kind of, you know, do what yeah, you've been doing. Absolutely. Um, for, I, there's, I have mountains of advice. I can talk to you for days about writing, but I won't, well, I won't we, do we that. Got, it's all, it's all cloud <laughs> recorded. So I think there's no, um, <laughs> I won't do that to your readers. They sign again. It's all about uh, audience expectations and their expectations are to sign on to this for an aviation podcast with a little bit of, you know, writing involved. Uh, I won't, I won't turn it into a writing podcast, but um, it is an amazing time to be a writer. So if you do have an idea, um, you should know that things have changed from the old days. If you started writing prior to 2011, things would have been different. Like you would have, you have to go down this whole other route of having a bunch of other people, um, agents, publishers, things like that, who basically have to are the gatekeepers of whether or not your books ever see the light of day. Because of uh, Amazon creating print on demand, and uh, Kindle, of course, you know, e-readers, audiobooks are booming. There's a whole new market for indies, uh, just very much like the way, imagine, indie music has sort of blown up. Like an indie musician can now put things on Spotify without having to have a major recording contract. It's very similar to that. Granted, you still have to write a good song. In this case, you still have to write a good book. You still have to edit it well. It's competitive to get it out there. You have to put a good cover on it. You have to do everything that a publisher can do. However, the opportunity is there. So if you have an idea even if it's a niche idea. Um, and I think there's actually a, a, a market for aviation books or aviation related books. I don't think they're overdone at all. I think um, you, if you do the research, browse around the categories on Amazon, kind of see how things are doing on there, see where the need is. 
And if you have that story in you, definitely start working on it. And um, like I said, there's so many resources out there right now. Of course, there's um, classes on it. There's there's a great um, website I always send people to called Kindlepreneur.com. It's like entrepreneur, but for Kindles. So Kindlepreneur, guy named Dave Chesson. Um, he's ex-military. He was uh, intelligence officer, I think in the Navy, and then um, has created this blog as well on the side because he's a writer and has tons of information out there for people who are interested who, who want to get started in aviation. I have a podcast as well called Book Faces Live. You can listen to some uh, interviews. Uh, you're always welcome to reach out to me, um, just Nathan Van Koops. I'm V-A-N-C-O-O-P-S. I'm the only one there is, so I'm super easy to find as we've, as we've discovered. As I've <laughs> as rough Russ has proved. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out if you have questions, but yeah, if you have an idea that sticks with you and if it's one of those things that you think you have the staying power to like really see it to the end of a novel, play around with it. Um, and then of course, read a lot in your genre, read other books that you think are similar, read, um, just get to understand how books work. It's a long road uh, to become a good writer. Um, some I remember one time I was at a writer's conference when I was younger, and they're like, "Yeah, it takes about ten years." And I'm like, "Wow, that's stupid. It can't possibly take ten years." And it doesn't, but it, it takes a while to be good. You know, like your first book you write is probably garbage, and then the second book you write is a little better, and the third book you write might be really great. Um, that's why we have drafts. That's why we have to do it over and over again. You read a lot. Um, the first book I ever read, Stephen King's On Writing, uh, was an excellent resource because it's a mem- part memoir, part craft guide. And I don't agree with everything he says because he's got a different model than I do in the way he writes, but um, excellent short book. You just start consuming um, just like you would if you're learning to fly. You take a little piece at a time. You know, you don't start day one on landings. You know, I mean, you start day one on straight and level. You know, like that's same thing with, with writing. Um, you just start with little pe- little piece at a time and, and work your way up to being able to write a novel, but it's absolutely doable. And now is actually a really good time to be a writer. There's a lot of people making a good amount of money doing it. It's great passive income. Um, so yeah, lots of opportunities. So what about the author that's thinking of doing uh, nonfiction? Is some mm-hmm. of the advice still apply there? Absolutely. Yeah. Nonfiction is great. Audio is booming in nonfiction. Um, there's still a lot of opportunities with nonfiction. You of course have to ask the question, um, what problem am I solving? Cause people read nonfiction because they have a problem and you have to present yourself as the solution to that problem. And, um, they always say with, with nonfiction, you know, don't sell the drill bit, sell the hole. Like you're, what is, what are they going to get from having read your book? What problem do they have now? And what problem will they solve? because you have fixed it for them. So think about that in terms of, you know, it's, it's almost like sales, you know, you got to figure out, you know, what's your, uh, is your background strong enough? Uh, do you have the experience and the expertise to answer this question? Do you have a, a reputation in the industry that you can stand on to make you an expert in this field, et cetera? And then absolutely, yeah, you can write a book. And a book is a great way actually to gain uh, reputation as well. If you already are an industry professional, maybe you're, uh, you're a pilot or an educator, by putting out a book, um, it gives you an extra credential to have. And you can sell it on your website. You can uh, hand them out 
to people. You can make a small, small enough book that it's cheap enough to produce that you can give them away. And um, as a resource to the people, people don't throw away books, especially paperback books, if, especially if you sign it and give it to them, that's going to stay on their shelf for a while, as opposed to just some random book that they got at the library or whatever things, books come and go. But if, if someone personally gives you a book, especially if you write their name in it, <laughs> they're going to keep it. And um, you become a part of their bookshelf. You know, they become, um, you become some, somebody that they personally connected with. And Russ, you talked about how now is a time when we can reach out to the authors that we read and actually right. get to know them and connect with them on a personal level. And it's an amazing time to be a reader in addition to being a good time to be a writer because of social media and the opportunity to, to get to know how to do this. Now you you did really quickly breeze by your uh, podcast. Well, tell mm -hmm. us what that is again. Sure. Yeah. It's um. It's it's not as fancy as this podcast. The sound quality won't be as good. So just <laughs> throw that out there. Um. But it is Book Faces Live is basically it's a Facebook live streaming show. I've been doing it for a couple of years, and uh, I interview other successful authors. So some of whom have been you know number one bestsellers in the Amazon store. Like some I'm constantly amazed at the caliber of authors who are really agreeing to come hang out with me. Um, I've met a lot of them at conferences, things like that, but basically we sit down and do interviews and chit chat about different topics that they write in, um, different marketing um, tricks and, and tips for how to, how to publish. And there's a ton of podcasts out there that are honestly even better than mine. Um, so, and I reference some of those on there. We talk about books. We talk about, um, resources for writers. It's just a great community. It's a great group of people. It's a Facebook group called Book Faces Live. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, it's also on iTunes and, and Podbean, wherever you want to look it up. But um, yeah, if you're interested, definitely, if you want to know more about writing, you can, or you can always contact me and I can send you to a bunch of other podcasts. That's one of the things that while I was young, when I was learning to be a writer, one of the things I did was just consume a ton of podcasts because I'd be working or walking the dog or doing something else and constantly learning this craft of writing. You bet, you bet. Well, thank you very much. We got to bring it back to aviation <laughs> and how I want to do that is yeah. to put you on the spot yeah. and ask you if you have a, you know, a favorite aviation book or like one that really kind of reflects your passion for aviation uh, or, or just really makes you excited about, about flying and such. Do you have a favorite one? You know, I don't... Um, interestingly enough, I think my favorite aviation related book is, um, illusions by Richard Bach. And I don't know if you've ever read it, but Richard Bach wrote Jonathan Livingston seagull, which was, um, of course, aviation related. He's a seagull and learning how to be a better, faster flying seagull. But, um, illusions was, he, he was a, he was a pilot, of course, uh, Richard Bach, and he writes about this this story about a guy who's flying around and I want to say it's a, a Jenny or a tiger moth, some sort of um, biplane. And it's earlier, earlier in the century and he's able to just go barnstorming into people's fields and give rides. And he's having this also sort of existential journey with this other character that he meets who also has an airplane and who um, is sort of a reluctant Messiah type character, almost like, um, if Jesus were to come back as a pilot, that sort of thing. It was, a, it's a really interesting book. It's, it's excellent. And it, it kind of takes you back. Not only is it a good kind of read that makes you think on a 
spiritual and existential level, but it also has a lot of love of aviation in it. And it kind of takes you back to those old barnstormer days. And um, so that one, I would say I'm going to throw that up as my, as my top pick. For well, that'll work. It's, yeah. it's funny you mentioned that because I literally about yesterday just finished Stranger to the Ground, also by Richard Bach. So, okay. yeah. so that's one we're at. I don't know if you've read it, but he's, uh, I mean, the, the book is based around his flight of an F-84 within Europe. You know, it's one flight, but throughout the book, he's, you know, you know, you know the same kind of stuff. You're know, speaking yeah. about the the feeling of flight and, and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, different stories from his past, but yeah, yeah. very very good writer. Very very. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. See, I'm not very creative. I can't even think of the word. You <laughs> no, know, okay. symbology and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. You know about about the what what we uh, feel and and hear and, and that kind of stuff. His love for what flying. Inspires his, us. Love for yeah, flying. his love definitely comes through on the page you know, in, in all of his books. And you can Agreed. Kind of tell. There's another one that you can obviously tell as a pilot. Yes. Well, certainly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, gosh, well, Nathan, this has been awesome. Uh, yeah. you, and Russ, I, I'm so glad you suggested this because, uh, you know, Nathan, we'll talk offline. We have, we have a lot in common. seems like a lot of common friends, and aviation obviously is our friend. Uh, you know, I, I picked this uh, title as uh, Two Passions, Flying and Formation. Uh, you, you have really – you're the quintessential person that is, is, represents that. You actually have these two passions that seem far apart, but they're flying in formation in your life mm-hmm. and uh and and hats off to you for doing that i love the fact that many times we don't design our life because we're told to pigeonhole ourselves in these different things and and one of the things i, I like about you nathan is you represent that you represent somebody that that hasn't pigeonholed themselves of one thing but is able to have one two maybe more passions and is successful in those. So uh, really, I, I commend you for that. That's, that's terrific. And I love what you're doing and, and helping people move forward, too. And that, that, that's really something that I really appreciate. Well, that's a, that's a nice compliment. Thank you. I've, actually, I've always loved teaching. I've loved, you know, flight instructing was something I was naturally good at. I, I really enjoy giving back that way. And I've, it's something I've been trying to do on the writing front as well, uh, being able to say, okay, how can I help those who have helped me? Because we all get where we are because we've had great instructors. We've had someone along the way has taught us, in my case, you know, mechanics who have taught me how to be a good mechanic. And um, yeah, it's, it's really important to reach back down and help somebody else up the ladder uh, whenever possible, for sure. You know, and we're an aviation podcast. Did you want to also plug one of the other uh, websites or whatever as far as your, your mechanic DME or anything like that? Uh, well, sure. Yeah. If anyone is um, get, working on being an A&P, you can always reach out to me. And uh, I do do mechanic testing for, for power <laughs> plant and, and airframe tests if you ever want to come do one of those. But uh, I'd say definitely just you know wander over to NathanVanCoops.com and you can get yourself a free story from me. There's a, a novella called Clockwise and Gone. If you uh, sign up, send me your email address so you can actually get um, one of these adventure stories for free. So it's a, you can download it for your phone or Kindle or whatever you want and uh, check out some of these time travel adventure stories. So definitely go grab yourself a, f- a free book and um, you can always email me any of the other questions you have as well. Well, I'm signing up right now and uh, hope all of you that are listening will do that too. It's really easy actually to find Nathan, NathanVanCoops.com and uh, someone who truly is passionate about aviation and also about writing. Thanks again, Nathan, for being here. And Russ, thanks for uh, bringing Nathan along. 
Man, Carl, I'm so glad we could get him on. Nathan, it's been great. I, I loved it. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Anytime, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Now, don't forget, if you're listening right now and you want to find more information, all that we talked about is in the show notes below, even some of the links to some of the books that we talked about. And if you're thinking about uh, writing, if there's a book inside you, reach out to Nathan. I think he has some great advice. Listen to his podcast out there. And again, we'll have links to that podcast. If, if there's something that's holding you back uh, from moving forward in both your writing and your aviation, I think Nathan is someone who is a good example, who's come overcome so many different struggles and has really excelled in two different passions in his life, both flying and formation, the aviation and the writing. Well, folks, I really appreciate your listening, and uh, we can't wait to talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.